Hello and welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I had an incredible conversation with Brett Martin. In it, we talked about the importance of getting to know, why as a pre-seed founder, you wanna look for the right VC and what you should be looking for, why Python is to today's generation, what Excel was for yesterday's generation, and buying ad traffic off porn sites to boost Vice's monthly visitors to get it from 80,000 to 2 million monthly views back in 2007. This is an incredible conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's get stuck right in. This episode of the Nothing Ventured Primer. I am really excited to have with me Brett Martin. Brett is an entrepreneur, angel investor, co-founder of Cuomo Space and managing partner at Charge Ventures, and is helping nurture the next generation of founders as adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Brett, it's really great to have you here with me today. Arish, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Amazing. So let's talk about your background uh, and Charge Ventures. So why don't we start with your background? Uh, well, you know, I've been a, um, other than a brief stint at an investment bank right out of college, I've been either building or investing in early stage technology companies out of New York City for my entire career. I've uh, founded three companies. I've um, worked at three venture firms. And uh, yeah, I just can't get enough of that early stage risk. Amazing. So let's talk about uh, charge ventures as an example. So what stage do you invest at? What sectors, what geographies and what sort of check size? Yeah, so Charge Ventures, uh, it's you know premium pre-seed venture capital based out of New York. We like to say that uh, you know the earliest investments you get are from friends, family, fools, and Charge Ventures. Uh, we do um, you know anywhere from 500 to 750k checks into companies just getting off the ground, usually 750 to two million dollar rounds. What that's what we call pre-seed in New York City. So usually it's uh, you know somewhere anywhere from like a four, you know three, four to maybe maxing out around $10 million pre-money uh, valuation. And, um, you know, we really have a, a focus on, we've uh, done a lot of great creator economy investments. We do a lot of um, dev tools, machine learning, uh, analytics investments, and we do a lot of healthcare. So we've done a lot of B2B uh, healthcare software investments. And finally, we have a pretty strong crypto practice, probably invested in close to 10 crypto companies in the, in the past year. That's incredible. So if you were to think of three companies that you're super excited about right now, what would those three be? Out of our portfolio? Out of your portfolio I, well, or you elsewhere, know, yeah. We, we don't we don't have favorites we, we we love them all but just some i think you know representative investments is uh we've invested in grin.co that's the leader in influencer marketing um we did the pre-seed investment in electric ai they're um what the they provide it support to smbs uh over the over the internet uh, we've also invested in um bison trails uh, one of the uh, you know big infrastructure providers in crypto space sold to Coinbase for over a billion dollars. Um, yeah, those are some representative investments, but we made some great new investments. We just invested in a company called Rella. It's a uh, basically a business in a box back back office software for um, creators. Uh, just did that, you know, fresh pre-seed. Think uh, the founder Natalie is is amazing. So uh, it's not just about the biggest companies that we were excited about the small ones too. Incredible. And if there was sort of one sector, one theme that you're really excited about over the next sort of three, five, 10 years, what would that be? You're allowed to say generative AI. 
<laughs> I mean, I teach machine learning at Columbia Business School, so I've been interested in AI for you know the past six, seven years. But um, I, you know, I think B two B software in the U.S. is going to be just a massive market. I think that over, we've invested in a lot of D two C healthcare companies, and so there's just like a you know new ecosystem of venture backed uh, healthcare companies in the U.S. And now they all want better tooling. They want better infrastructure. They want better APIs. And so I think there's finally an opportunity to invest in B2B uh, software, healthcare software, and there's a market for it. You don't have to sell into, you know, they don't want your uh, father's EHR, electronic health records anymore. So that's a space we're really excited about. We think AI is going to intersect really interestingly with that and automate a lot of uh, hitherto uh, manual process processes. And, uh, and, by the way, super bullish on crypto still. So, uh, you know, now that all the fair weather folks are getting out of the market, I think it's time to make money, and uh, we'll you'll we'll be lo- uh, laughing about it on the next up cycle. I am sure you will be. Well, Brett, thank you very much. Can't wait to get into the detail with you in the main podcast. Yep. yep. Thanks so much. Excited. Let's go. Awesome. All right. That's uh, that's the first one done. <laughs> Uh, Boom! Easy peasy. You make it. E- you make it easy, sir. The the the, uh, the the only problem I now have is I'm 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 trying to hold myself back from pitching my own business to you because like it feels like you'd be the ideal investor. Anyway, uh, and I'm about well, we to do that. We can do that. We can do that later. We, well, yeah, we'll do that. I need to get a new deck up, and I'll, I'll definitely shoot that to you. But uh, interestingly, I'm about to start working. Well, potentially about to start working with a. Uh, a web three venture builder as CFO. So like, I mean, just at a very high level, but these guys are building uh, ventures for uh, effectively very, very successful uh, founders who have outsized influence in their space, uh, uh, but don't know how to build web three tech. So they're building web two business models with web three underpinned by web three infrastructure and, and tech. And to give you an example, they're doing two media businesses. One, they're creating a DAO for, so an Academy Award winner wants to create a DAO for how uh, films are effectively uh, uh, both financed as well as uh, how how the ideas behind the films are also kind of uh, confirmed. So effect- effectively, you'd have a DAO that decides what content to create. And then the second one they're building is like, um, uh, effectively fractional ownership of the long tail of uh, um, uh, long tail of um, um, uh, sort of minor artists, right? Who have huge catalogs, but do- don't actually have, you know, any sort of big backing uh, and and it allows them to obviously monetize their their catalog in a way that they wouldn't have been able to so anyway i i agree i think now that the fair weather uh, you know the tourists are basically left like there's a huge amount of excitement around there um so yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm actually really keen to because i didn't i didn't learn yeah. enough i think over the last few years i want to learn more about that whole space anyway that's all by the by so cool i'll definitely send you when we're doing stuff i'll, I'll uh, see if you want to come come on in join us amazing i would uh, i would definitely appreciate that um okay cool we can go to the main pod so um right hello and welcome to this episode of nothing ventured with me arish shah today it is really incredible for me to have brett martin with me brett is an entrepreneur angel investor the co-founder of chromo space and managing partner at charge ventures uh, and is helping nurture the next generation of founders as adjunct professor at columbia business school brett it is really great to have you here with me today 
Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to jam. Excellent. Well, let's jump straight into it. I'd love to understand, you know, as an entrepreneur, what is the biggest challenge that you faced as a founder? Uh, and where did you fail? And what have you learned from from those failings? Uh, well, I have failed many times. I have lit millions of dollars of my own money and venture capitalist money on fire. So, and uh, nothing but other than a few t-shirts in uh, a drawer in my mom's house to show for it. <laughs> so uh, it's hard to figure out where to start, but I, but I think honestly, um, for me, one of the biggest lessons is just around partnerships. Um, you know, if you have to, partnerships are difficult. You have to make them work. And the worst thing you can do is be in a partnership that you're not happy about, but then not do anything about it. So you either got to make it work, accept it for what it is, or get out. There is no, there is no other, no other option. Um, and, I, and I think particularly where this can be insidious is for entrepreneurs, um, because you have to be all in. And so if you're not excited about your partnership, you're kind of one foot in the door, one foot out the door. There's always an excuse for why things aren't working. And it's why, you know, founder dynamics actually kill way more companies than, than, than you know about. Um, so particularly as like early stage uh, pre-seed investors where there really isn't much uh, there to diligence or evaluate other than the founding team, we are very um, see, sensitive to founder dynamics. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of that pre-seed stage and what founders should be looking for in their investors. But, you know, we had someone on the podcast recently, they said, you know, the average uh, length of the UK marriage is uh, shorter than the average length of your kind of VC founder relationship, especially at pre-seed, uh, which I, I found really interesting because the reality is, right, this is a 10-year kind of 15-year journey. Uh, ultimately, you are going to be working with, you know, either your co-founder or your VC or your investors or your employees for that matter for a huge amount of time. So you've got to be in it for the long run. And I think exactly as you said, if you are seeing signals that it's not working, you either got to fix it or move on. And I think a lot of founders often try and fix it where actually what they should be doing is moving on because the worst thing you want to you want to have in an early stage business is getting bogged down by kind of, you know, a lot of toxicity and a lot of, you know, negative relationships because that can just drain the business of all the energy, right? Or, or even worse is actually not even trying to fix it, just ignoring it, yeah. right? And be, it's like kind of being in an unhappy marriage where it's silent and no one's no one's fucking anymore, <laughs> right? You're just sort of there, no one's happy, and nothing nothing is going to improve. I'd rather see the founders, you know, go and get some counseling and at least try to reconcile, drive to some sort of conclusion, rather than create sort of fightums inside the company that ultimately rip it apart. Yeah. And, and the really interesting thing there as well, I found is, you know, you see it a lot where founders don't have a, co you know, co-founder or a shareholders agreement in place or co-founders agreement in place. And, you know, things don't work out, they go the wrong way. And then you just get left with, you know, just a huge amount of disappointment and disillusionment between them where they're trying to work out, well, you know, your equity is only worth this because you only did this and now you're leaving. Uh, and it can just, you know, it can, it can actually kill the business ultimately as well. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's funny. You obviously want to be clear about exit provisions uh, up front, right? That's like a nice, you know, being clear about that. But it's actually less about the contract. I feel like any relationship that you have to, that you 
any relationship that you enter into, if you feel like you have to rely on the contract, it's too late. Yeah, it's yeah. already screwed. Yeah, it's yeah. already screwed. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So 100%. the contract is literally just a definition of expectations. But if you think that you have to rely on the contract to enforce those expectations, the the partnership is screwed. Yeah, 100%. Actually, I have a separate podcast off balance where I run through kind of 100 lessons I've learned over the last 20 years. And one of them is, you know, contract is there for when things go wrong. So make sure you have one in place. But the first thing I say is, you know, at the end of the day, if you have gotten to the point where you need to look at your contract, it's already too late. Uh, and you want to try and fix things, you know, a as quickly as possible before that. Uh, that's that's super interesting. I'd, I'd love to kind of move on to, uh, to understand what it's like on the other side of the table, right at charge. Um, you know, how are you helping founders navigate the current market, which, you know, we all know it's 2023 sort of Q1, uh, you know, venture is down already, valuations are down, it's getting harder to raise funding. I think there's going to be a lot of fallout over the next 12 months of people that raised, you know, maybe a year, two years ago, had sort of 12, 18 months runway coming to market now to raise um, and really struggling because valuations are down, they're having to take down rounds, flat rounds, et cetera, et cetera. You know, What's it like as someone who's been an entrepreneur and a founder and, and gone through those situations, surely, you know, as I'm sure you have, uh, to being on the other side as an investor? How do you kind of help founders navigate all of that? I, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think the key thing that we can provide at Charge is empathy uh, because we've been there. We've been there before. I, you know, my one of my first companies, we were running out of money. All my investors left me for dead and I had to spend six months raising 25K every two weeks just to keep the company alive. And that was a pretty stressful time. I was close to $100,000 in credit card debt as a 27-year-old. You know, and um, it was pretty stressful. So I remember that. I remember that. I remember the investors that actually stood by and, and helped us out. And I definitely remember the ones that left us for dead. And, uh, you know, when I was writing my annual newsletter to our LPs at the end of the year, and I was thinking about, you know, we, we didn't do that many deals. Uh, I mean, that's, that's not true. I mean, we still did our seven, eight deals in 2022. We actually did, we actually did 29 investments. Uh, we did all 21 portfolio. Uh, we did 21 follow-ons in our portfolio. And so I was thinking, you know, we actually did a lot of work last year. It just was very focused on the portfolio. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't really considered that until I did it. I went and I did an ayahuasca ceremony and, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it really brings up kind of like where you're holding emotional trauma. And I spent about four hours just bawling. And I realized that a lot of that was tied up to the emotional sort of weight I was carrying from spending hours and hours every day on the phone with our portfolio. And a lot of these folks, you know, no one else was talking to them. You know, no other investor were talking to them. And, uh, you know, because the, the, Rule of thumb, the rational thing to do, and this is what a lot of big multi-stage VCs do, is they, they stack rank their portfolio and they say, all right, well, we're going to take the bottom 75% and we're going to completely ignore them and we're going to spend all of our energy on the 25% that at the top of the portfolio because that is the rational thing to do. And, um, you know, I was thinking, I was like, I don't know if it's because we're naive, we're still young fund managers, we're only eight years into this, and maybe we're not jaded, but we just 
or if it's because we're former founders, we just can't do that. And so, you know, we spent all last year on the phone. And I think a lot of times we were on the phone with the people who no one else would talk to. Um, and, you know, I was trying to rational, I was trying to think through that. And I was like, wow, is this because I'm a bad VC that I'm still doing this? <laughs> and what I realized was, you know, the reason I do it is because I can't help but do it because I'm a founder. But I think there is a very rational reason to do this. And it's because you never know who is going to be successful because I have had plenty of companies that were super hot and, you know, looked like, oh, they were going to be a billion dollar companies. And then it just fell apart. And I also have plenty of other companies where, um, you know, things didn't work out for years. They spent six years wandering in the woods and then they figured it out. And now they're going to be billion dollar companies. And so, I, you know, I think the answer is like you do it because you you're a human and you know that these people need support and you made a partner 10 year partnership with entrepreneurs but the rational reason to do it is because you never know who's going to who's going to make it i think that's a really thoughtful answer because like i was thinking about this in terms of you know portfolio triage you know it happened during covid we saw a lot of this right where effectively vcs sort of said well you know, we're just going to concentrate exactly as you said on that top 25% uh, and ignore the rest. And everyone was scrabbling around looking for money. Um, but, but the reality is right. Like VC is a power law game and you never know which, which, uh, which one's going to, you know, is going to hit the, the, the numbers that, that you want it to. So I think, yeah, I, I mean, as a founder, you know, I would think that I would want my investors to, to be there by my side and like helping me figure it out. And even if helping me figure it out means actually, you know what, maybe this isn't the right way to go forward and you've got to pivot or you've got to actually just mothball for whatever period. I think that is, you know, it, it, you need you need that as a founder because you've got no one else to talk to, right? Like you can't necessarily talk to your partner about it because you know your partner may not actually be interested in it, just more interested in you putting putting food on the table. Uh, but you know, who else is there? You can't talk to the employees, you can't talk to anyone else, and your investors hopefully are there for that for that journey. And in fact, that kind of leads me on to the, the the next question I had, which is, you know, what advice do you give to or can you give to founders? to find the right investor at pre-seed? Like, and I don't mean about who has the cash, who has the check, but I mean, what should they be looking for from their investor, from their VC at that pre-seed level? What are the most important things that you guys bring to the table? Okay, I think there's two things here. One is something that is still poorly understood by founders, I think, which is that they think that they need to convince investors of the value of what they're doing, when instead you actually just need to find the investors who already believe in what you're doing and make that connection, right? So like, you know, if you don't have a connection, if the investor is skeptical, you know, doesn't, it doesn't really get it, right? Or is not that interested in it, right? You, you know, we've all experienced that, uh, you know, pitching someone and having them just like, it's obvious that they don't want to be there. It's obvious that they're just like, this is the meeting on their schedule. They're, you know, filling time, right? Like the goal is not to convince that person, but rather identify that they are not interested quickly and then move them to path. 
and drive that to conclusion as quickly as possible. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs waste a lot of time pitching because because uh, VCs, they don't want to say no, right? It's to their advantage to just keep the optionality in, in case something does change or there's some other signal that says that they should invest, right? So you should be driving conclusions to know as quickly as possible and then filling the top of the funnel and finding the person who's feels that problem acutely. They, you know, they've been looking for you or they have some personal resonance with your story and then it's going to click. It's going to move very fast once you do that. Right. And so, um, that's what you should be looking for as a pre-seed, uh, you know, founder looking for pre-seed. And then the second reason thing is, you know, why pre-seed, why take a pre-seed investor as opposed to, you know, a big seed investor or a multi-stage fund. And it's, you know, because, you want someone who's aligned with you, right? Like, you know, and this is maybe another reason, you know, I'm pitching my book here, but like why you would want to work with like an insurgent fund rather than an established fund is because, you know, if you're a church ventures, you need all your investments to work, right? I need to raise my next fund and I can't have companies, you know, that have quick zeros. I need, you know, I need it to work out. So I'm not going to give up on you. Unlike a big multi-stage fund where, you know, they already have a big established, uh, you know, they have an established reputation and, you know, their whole goal is if something's not going to work out, they want to cut beta on as quickly as possible to move on to the next thing, whereas I don't have that luxury. Um, so I think finding funds that are aligned with you and truly are on the sa same page need to make it work. Like that's your advantage. Well, firstly, you are more than welcome to pitch your own book. That's not, not a problem on this podcast at all. Uh, one of the things I love there, and, and it's something that it's been really uh, interesting to have learned over the last uh, couple of years, uh, is, you know, getting to know as quickly as possible, right? Getting to that know. And in fact, like last year when I was looking to raise for one of my businesses, I spent six months sort of, you know, traipsing around looking uh, looking for that capital. And it became really, really apparent, like who was interested, who wasn't in interested exactly as you said. Uh, but the most, you know, the most important thing for me was, can I get to that no within a day or two days? Because then I can just cut my losses, move on to the next one. The worst thing is when you have people stringing you along for three weeks, one month, you know, saying, yeah, we're looking at it, we'll decide, you know, we'll come back to you. And then ultimately it gets to a no anyway. Uh, and in fact, actually one of one of the founders that I worked with, um, I took her to a, a, a VC fund. She met, you know, the entire team, met two partners, and then, you know, was told uh, ultimately, actually, you know, we're not bullish on this space or we, we, we don't have conviction that there is something uh, to be done here. And it was like, well, you know, you, you knew you weren't going to invest early on why didn't you just say that you know straight from the bat and i and i think you know i think that's uh that's that's something that i think founders assume that once they get into the meetings of the vcs that's always going to progress to a yes but the reality is it may be exactly as you say that they are just looking to understand the space better or get more uh, data or more information about what's going on and ultimately you know they, they may actually end up stringing out the founder because they have the ability to do that. The founder, unfortunately, does not. They need the money in the bank, you know, in the next month, two months. Um, so I think getting to know is is a is a really important thing, a really important lesson that I think founders need to learn, um, you know, really quickly. Um, let's let's talk about data and digital literacy uh, because you know that's kind of what you teach. I understand it at Columbia Business School. Why is it critical to be teaching that MBA? today and and is that different from what it was maybe five or ten years ago yeah so i think there's two things one is you know why is digital literacy important it's because tech you know so tech is the world software is in the world right so like 
every industry is now tech. Tech is mainstream. If you're trying to build something new and you know growth oriented, then you need to understand tech. That's pretty obvious, right? The second is around data, and I um, I'll explain it because I was interviewing TAs one year. And I looked up, and I was speaking to this smart young woman, and she had uh, taking. She was an MBA and had a finance background, but she was taking um, coding classes at, at, at Columbia, intro to Python. And and I was asking her, I said, you know, why why are you doing this? Uh, given that she wanted to enter VC, and and she said, <laughs> she said to me, she said, I think that Python is to my generation as Excel was yeah. to yours. And I had to step back because I was like, first off, I was like, man, I'm getting old. <laughs> but secondly, I was thinking, you know, I thought that was pretty smart. I was like, you know, the future of data, you know, the, what, the way we used to manipulate data when I was right out of college was in Excel. And I think that this next generation is going to use code to be able to manipulate data in a much more powerful way uh, than than we could. And so I think that's why data analytics is important, right? You know, historically, um, being a leader was all about, you know, having a good gut, having a good intuition. And nowadays it's, you, you know, you, we all, everyone wants a, and as an investor, right? We want data driven CEOs. Um, and so, you know, being able to be fluent with data is important. And, um, I will say that said, even though I teach data analytics and machine learning, I think that, people are, you know, the pendulum always swings. And so now I think a lot of people think that being a data-driven leader means, I think they sometimes confuse it with painting by numbers. Yeah. So they think, oh, well, I don't have to have any opinions. I just have to look at the data and it'll tell me what to do. And I want to be clear that that is not actually that useful. You, you know, the, the, Oftentimes you don't have data and oftentimes logic and intuition is actually the fastest way of making a decision. And so a lot of times you're, you know, you use data when you can, but you don't always have data. So I still think there's value in both. Um, but you know, why not have the data tool in your tool set? A hundred percent. But I mean, also, you know, you're investing at pre-seed, like pre-seed businesses often don't have a huge amount of data to go on. Right. So they have to be doing things by gut and intuition and instinct. Right. And I think the other thing is, uh, that, you know, I, I've often seen in scaling businesses, you know, where there are huge, huge pools of data. Yeah, it's great to have that data, but unless you can actually interrogate the data in a way that tells you something meaningful without bringing your own biases in, right, the, the, the data can actually also become meaningless, right? Because ultimately the data is only as good as what information you're trying to find out and the patterns that you're able to identify within that data. Yeah, and you know, my co-founder and the CEO of Kumo Space, um, you know, Yang Mao, he's a long, long time friend of mine. We built three businesses together. You know, he is really great at like having that intuition. And he's, you know, he's an engineer, he's very technical, but what has sets him apart is his ability to make quick decisions and you know, know when to bother getting into data and 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 not. Um so yeah, I think you have to have a you have to have a balance. The other problem is that one thing I've learned from teaching this data analyst class for now six years is that in the beginning of a company's journey, you're constantly changing your processes, yeah. right? You're constantly pivoting, not you know pivoting fifteen degrees, ten degrees here or there, right? Your your sales process is not the same for two months at a time, and so unfortunately, you 
can't use data if you're constantly changing your processes because your data you know tells you about how an old process was not the new process so i find that data analytics are mostly really don't become useful until a company is really series a you know series a series b because you start to have you know stable enough processes that you can use data to improve them before that you really you know you, you have to rely on gut yeah absolutely i mean that it's it's kind of the way i think about financial modeling right as a, as a cfo ultimately at, at startup stage you know you are basically making a huge number of assumptions and there isn't a lot of data to back that up uh, as you scale, you should be using the data to drive those assumptions, right? So it should almost be an automated process. And equally, you know, uh, if you aren't a data-driven organization today, I guess, right, you are probably running the risk of becoming obsolete very quickly because others are using that data. They're able to target people uh, a lot more efficiently. They're able to target the right people. They're able to understand their own processes in a way that, you know, non-data-driven businesses, uh, you know, aren't, and and therefore the, they will succeed as a result of that. And in fact, you know, that kind of comes, uh, takes us quite nicely onto one of the questions I had for you, which was, you know, you back in the day, and we're going back, I think, you know, uh, almost 15, 16 years now, uh, you know, we're with Vice's VBS TV, and you took the monthly kind of viewership from 80,000 to 2 million within, you know, three or four months, uh, it's obviously become way harder to grab people's attention today. So how, you know, especially compared to those early days of, the, of, of mobile and internet where there just wasn't a lot happening. It was just, you know, people were just breaking ground on, on, on these sort of products. So how should founders now navigate this new sort of situation where it's really hard to grab attention, acquisition costs are becoming harder uh, and higher rather the, uh, to, to, um, you know, to, to, to acquire new customers and new, new eyeballs. How should founders be navigating, you know, today versus what it was like then? Yeah, that was funny. I mean, you know, I had just, <laughs> I had just uh, uh, been an investment banker, and then I lived in a sailboat uh, for a year, and then I came back, and I had um, a summer uh, before going to Italy uh, for a Fulbright scholarship, and so I was helping Vice. I was actually the only person at Vice that uh, I built the first spreadsheet of Vice, at Vice, which back then was called VBS.TV, and um, it was a pretty hilarious operation. They were selling a bunch of ads. They didn't even know how much inventory they had, so they were sell first and then figure out how to fulfill later, which was a hilarious operation. And so we had sixty thousand. Um, I think, you know, monthly visitors when I started and then we got it to 2 million. And the, the way we did it was we were uh, <laughs> buying, um, we were buying traffic off porn websites and then smashing it up against VBS.TV. And so you could get really cheap uh, traffic from buying it off, buying ads on porn websites. And this was before anyone really actually was sophisticated enough to look at things like bounce rate. So we probably had probably a 95% bounce rate because, you know, obviously the people coming off porn weren't that interested in uh, whatever we were selling them. Um, but the, advertisers at the time weren't really paying attention and so they just saw our top line top line numbers and that was a great way to get in the game uh probably wouldn't recommend doing that now um but i think you know maybe what is transferable is um there's always new channels there's always some new channel there's and you know the secret is whatever the new channel is however stupid it is you just look at that and plow into that and you know get that early 
cheap traffic. And so for the past couple of years, that's been TikTok. TikTok. And, uh, you know, it still is TikTok. It's still the cheapest traffic in the game. And then learning how to partner with influencers um, to, you know, get that cheap traffic on TikTok. I mean, that's the best channel I, I know of today. And, you know, that will be worn out in a couple of years and there'll be some fancy new thing uh, to plow into. So you just got to be experimental uh, whenever you're marketing, always be trying three or four things at a time and seeing what sticks and then finding what works and then, you know, plowing into it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and you know, certainly, uh, you know, for someone like me, I'm 44 years old. Uh, I see my daughter's using TikTok. I'm not entirely sure I've ever oh used it. Oh my God, myself. you look great. <laughs> so I, I got to figure out your skincare routine. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's genetics and... Uh, somewhat healthy living but also having having an amazing family that supports me i think that's probably the 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 most important thing for me but yeah i haven't i haven't used tiktok myself but we are trying to like figure out how to use it and here in the uk you know uh you know we tend to be slightly behind every now and again on certain certain things but you know i think what what has been really interesting exactly as you said it's that evolution from kind of google to facebook to instagram to now tiktok you know linkedin has a place for kind of that b2b business although you know i appreciate that in in the us linkedin has a different sort of flavor uh, compared to, you know, here in the UK. Uh, and, and it's been also really interesting to see uh, actually how degre degradated the um, uh, the ad experience on Twitter has become over the last several months, right? So it seems like, you know, all sorts of rubbish is being served up uh, uh, on the Twitter feed uh, in a way that, you know, wasn't the case even six, uh, six ten months ago, I guess, pre-Elon pre having bought it, right? Um, and and it's interesting to see how these, you know, these megalith kind of businesses, you know, approach that because given that that's such a huge amount, a huge source of their revenue, the fact that that product sucks <laughs> like really badly, uh, you know, to me is really surprising because clearly that would be the, the first thing that one, one should try and fix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Elon slash half knows what he's doing and half is doing it for fun and that's worked out for him. And so why would, why, why would he stop? I, I think like, Cutting ninety percent of the team is is probably more of a statement than, than anything else. But I, I am personally optimistic that you know they're going to pull through. You can get a lot done with a really small group of really uh, dedicated, hardworking people, and so I. I am optimistically bullish. I don't know if he's going to make money on that, given that he bought at the top of the market. But I think that uh, you know, I think they'll pull through and build something interesting. For sure. So look, just as we wrap up, I'd love to understand from you, uh, you know, a little bit of advice for founders today. So, you know, the podcast is called Nothing Ventured. It's all about people kind of taking that plunge uh, and backing themselves. You know, for founders looking to get into the market to build something today, what's, what's the most critical piece of advice that you would give them uh, if they were just trying to get started? I think probably the biggest lessons and it took me years to learn so if i can help shortcut uh, other folks here is that you know when i started charge ventures i wasn't i, I didn't know you know am i going to be good at this i hadn't you know been an investor my own investor led investors before and i you know i was and the question was, you know, am I going to be good at this? I thought I have a good network. I thought I, you know, relatively smart guy, you know, I should be decent at this, but I wasn't sure. And so I wasn't 
as aggressive, you know, I was waiting to see, am I good at this? Am I good at this? And the problem with venture is that it's such a long feedback cycle that it literally took me, you know, seven, eight years to figure out, to get the numbers back. And it turns out, Hey, I'm actually pretty good. You know, I got almost a five X fund. I've returned, I've returned capital and, uh, you know, I've invested in five unicorns out of 60. So I almost, you know, one in 10 hit rate. And, um, you know, oh, now I'm pretty good. So now I'm like, okay, I got a little confidence. I have a little swagger and I'm a little more aggressive. Right. But I wasted seven years of, of, so, you know, seven years when I could have been more aggressive. I could have been doubling down. I could have deployed more capital. Right. And I, you know, was being conservative. And so, you know, I think it's, it's an obvious thing, but it's like, don't, don't wait for the world to prove to you that you're good, right? Just fucking believe in yourself and don't be self, don't be self-limiting. And so, you know, for all the people out there that are, you know, questioning, am I ready to do this? Do I know enough? You know, you, you know, you're never going to know, you're going to know until you try. And so just there, get after it and, you know, let the world prove you wrong. Yeah. Break ground. Take that first step. It like, I have to be honest over the last seven years, that has equally been, uh, probably the most important lesson that I learned. Like I was constantly waiting for other people, uh, you know, to, to tell me whether I should or shouldn't do something or to kind of, you know, almost give their approval. But actually every time I backed myself, it worked out even when it hasn't, cause I learned uh, a shit ton out of, out of just backing myself and doing something. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, for a lot of founders, they want to wait till they have an investor or they want, you know, the right, you know, the right co-founder or they want the right team in place or whatever. But, you know, every business starts with, you know, one person, probably an Excel spreadsheet and an idea, right? And, you know, you take it forward from there. I think that's, I think that's absolutely incredible advice. Uh, Brett, it has been absolutely incredible having you here with me today. It's so wonderful to have such a high energy uh, conversation. And I love the fact that you're sitting there in Costa Rica in February, enjoying a bit of sunshine and a bit of surf whilst, you know, we're here suffering in London uh, in the gray weather and, and, and freezing cold. But listen, for our listeners, Brett, where can they find you? You're on LinkedIn, you're on Twitter. Where's the best place for them to look for you online? Yeah, feel free. Hit me up on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Twitter, I'm Brett, B-R-E-T-T, one, two, one, one. And uh, it's just Brett at charge.vc. If you're looking to raise money and Brett at kumospace.com. If you're looking for a uh, virtual office for your remote or distributed team to show up and kick ass every day. So thank you so much for having me and uh, looking, looking forward to finding some deals to do together. Thanks, Brett. It has been absolutely incredible. I really appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you.